morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, February 3rd, we're studying Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 49. Jesus concludes his extended sermon to his disciples with further instructions concerning life in him, which he illustrates with parables about the importance of hearing his words by images from earthly life. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ, as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you this morning. Let's talk a little context. We're picking up in the middle of a sermon of Jesus. The division that we have is a little bit arbitrary because you just had to split it up into two to make sure we had plenty of time to talk about it. So what do we need to know, whether about Luke as a whole, and particularly what Jesus has been saying so far in this sermon, that'll help us with the verses we've got for today? Well, this the sermon that we're seeing here, it, it mirrors so well to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel account. So we'll see many parallels um, in the text, Matthew's account longer. So if if our hearers want to take a look at Matthew, that might help them to be able to unpack some things. But you see the similarities. This started with the Beatitudes. And then you, so you had a series, I think it was four Beatitudes, four woes that Jesus put before the people. Then he talked about how we are to love our enemies. And so those are topics that are still going to come up and interact with the text as we see it today. So just out of curiosity, because we talked a little bit about this yesterday it, with the parallels and also differences between what we get in Luke 6 and then what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 5 through 7, it, do, you, do you have any thoughts about, is this the same thing? I mean, the same event that Luke is recounting in a slightly different way? Could they be two separate teaching instances in which Jesus says similar things, but not quite in the same way? Do you have, uh, we kind of talked yesterday, you know, we may not be able to answer that question exactly, and that's probably okay, but I'm just curious, since, since you brought it up, should we think of this as a the Sermon on the Mount summarized or a separate sermon? What do you think? Can I answer yes to that? <laughs> this is sure. one of those things where I think you're right, and I, I teach this when I teach about Jesus on the Lord's Prayer, because we see the Lord's Prayer in both Matthew, and then we see it again in Luke. And they're not the same. They don't match word for word. And that causes Christians trouble sometimes as they think about that. Why aren't they the same? And part of this, I think, is the idea that what does Jesus do with his ministry? He's going around from one village to another village. And as he goes to these places, he's teaching them. He's preaching to them. He's, he's sharing with them the, the, the good news of the kingdom of God being at hand. And so in that perspective, then it would be easy to imagine that on multiple occasions, Jesus had people asking him as their Messiah, teacher, how should we pray? And so Jesus probably taught the Lord's Prayer to multiple groups on multiple occasions. And so I think that could be fitting for something like this, that now he's moved to a different people group um, than he was with before when we see it in Matthew. Or it could just be, as you suggested, maybe Luke here is, you know, several years down the road recording a a summary of of the sermon from Jesus to his disciples. 
Right. I think a yes is a fine answer because it's not really a question. I think that the text gives us to answer perfectly. I think you can make arguments on both sides. As long as we understand, you know, these are the words of Jesus. Luke and Matthew both record them faithfully for the purpose that we would know who Jesus is and see him as our Savior. So again, we're, we're picking up in the middle of that sermon here. Jesus has been teaching what does it look like to be his disciple. And and again, the, the division is, is somewhat arbitrary. Some, some that I've read suggest that verses 37 and 38, the verses that we're starting with today, really do belong with verses 27 through 36, a, a series of several imperatives in a row. And then the parable, there's a bit of a break, a narrative break, even in verse 39, 39 and following is a, a third section within this sermon. So with that in mind, let's just jump into those first two verses, Luke 6, verses 37 and 38. Jesus is speaking, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We'll pause there because, there again, there is a narrative break where Luke interrupts very briefly in thir- verse 39. So, Pastor Andrews, you and I have the privilege today of, at the outset, talking about perhaps the most famous verse in all of Scripture, or one of the most quoted, and it just gets yanked out of its context. And for whatever reason, it gets quoted in the King James English all the time still, judge not lest ye be judged. Now, Luke records it slightly different than that version from Matthew in King James English, judge not and you will not be judged is how it's phrased here. Maybe we should talk about both things. How does our culture, our world tend to use this verse? And how is that not quite what Jesus is getting at when he speaks it? Our culture likes to use this verse because it they think that they're using God's word to silence the Christian who opposes them. Um, and the picture here for our culture, our culture is what we would describe as hedonistic. They seek pleasure above all things, and they seek to avoid pain in all ways that they can. And so basically the goal of life is to find whatever makes me happy. And for you then as a Christian to come in and tell me that something is not good for me or that I should not do this thing, well, that that steals from my happiness. That robs me of my goal of life. So you're evil. And they use this verse, uh, again, as you mentioned, they use the Matthew version, but the same idea. They use this passage to to go at that. Basically, Christian, your own your own God told you not to do such a thing. Just leave me alone. Let me live my life the way I want to live my life. And you're right. It's out of context. That's not not what's being said here. And I think we see we see that as we actually read the text within its context as a whole. So help us into that context to get the right understanding. It's it's not a weapon that's meant to use to silence the Christian. You can't tell me what to do because Jesus says, judge not. So that's the wrong use. What is the right use? How do we see that in the context that Luke gives us here in chapter 6? So within Luke, if we're looking at this, I think it's helpful to consider this as Jesus really giving us earthly wisdom almost like what we call the golden rule from Matthew chapter 7, part of the Sermon on the Mount there. The way you want others to treat you is how you should treat them. Uh, most of our parents taught us that when we were kids, right? Um, so if you, 
if you don't want to be judged, if you don't want someone to accuse you, then don't live your life that way. Don't live as a, a person who's always going around looking for other people's faults and, and trying to, to act superior to them and, and those sorts of a things. Instead, you know, as he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. So if I forgive my wife in our relationship, my wife is more likely to forgive me. And if I live this lifestyle of forgiveness with my neighbors, my neighbors are more likely to reciprocate that and forgive me as well. And I think that's that's helpful. And I think verse 38 is kind of what clues us into the idea to look at this from a an, an earthly wisdom perspective. The measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So don't be skimpy. You know, as <laughs> this is back in the day where they actually use scales to measure things instead of you know, you're checking out at the cash register and you hand them cash or you hand them your debit card or, or whatever it is, um, you actually had balancing scales. And so if you're you're working with somebody, don't stuff something in the bag that isn't the product you're selling them in the marketplace because when they get home, they're going to recognize what you've done. They're going to realize you've cheated them. And how are they going to treat you? But if instead you're generous and you give them more than they even had paid for, they're going to see your generosity and that generosity in turn in a community, you know, it builds up and people are just going to be generous to each other. Um, I think that's a helpful picture and, and a way to look at these two verses together. Okay, so so one one way of thinking about it then, as, as you're suggesting, is to view them almost in in the sense of the proverbs as a way to to live a, a wise life. What what does a a life formed by God's wisdom look like? Well, it looks like one that is not constantly seeking to judge, to condemn, lest that be returned upon me. And you know, we've got that here in Luke in, in verse thirty one, as you wish that others would do to you do so to them. So, I mean, thinking through maybe the the Eighth Commandment and the explanation that's given in the small catechism to put the best construction or to explain everything in the kindest way, that's our, our first approach. And even thinking just the, the very previous verse, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. His intention with sinners is to show us mercy. And so, likewise, that should be our first, when we look at other people, that should be our intent, is to, how do I show this person mercy. Now, having said that, sometimes that does necessitate the Christian speaking out for what is false, for what is wrong, for or, or excuse me, against what is false and against what is wrong and what is evil, because we know that that isn't actually helpful for the person. I think that's going to come out as we continue in this text, but that, that I think is something important that, that we do need to bring out in response to the way our culture would use these words, judge not, that I mean, we're constantly making judgments, aren't we? I mean, just in everyday life, we can't help but make judgments on things in very real but innocent ways. So just sort of the, the flat prohibition, can't judge anything, that's just not realistic. Right. I mean, and this gets at the idea, and I think this might be a way that if, you're, if your friend uses that phrase to you in conversation or a coworker or something like that, how do you, how do you respond? And part of it might be to look at, okay, what does this word judge even mean? And there's levels of judgment, right? There is God's holy and perfect final judgment on the last day when he either welcomes you into his paradise or he sends you to the place that we all deserve. Um, but we are thankful as followers of Christ that we don't get to spend eternity in hell. That's a judgment. But then there is, as you mentioned, judgments we make every day. As 
as you get up in the morning, you judge what the weather will be like that day. You have to discern if it's going to be hot outside or cold outside so you know how to dress yourself, right, appropriately, Mm -hmm. and to know right from wrong, good from evil, um, to even, even if you're in the lunch line and you have two options before you of a meal to eat, you're making a judgment, you're making a discernment about what is best for my body or what is best for my taste buds or whatever your criteria are for how you've judged. But yeah, we all judge all day, every day. I, it would be interesting if somebody actually tried once, just once, this would probably be overwhelming to count how many judgments they have to make in a given day, how much they discern, because it's commonplace. Mm. Right, right. So when again, when Jesus says to judge not, then we need to understand that in the context. And I think you've you've helped set that context. And even just the you know the the full context of what we've got here in Luke six, and thinking back to the verses from yesterday, you know, when Jesus talks about loving your enemies, blessing those who curse you, praying for those abuse who abuse you. I mean, I think that's that ties in with what he's saying here in this matter of judging not, and condemning not, and forgiving. How how am I going to love my enemies or bless the ones who curse me or pray for the ones who abuse me? I, I, I'm only going to do that when I'm not in an attitude of judgment and condemnation. Rather, I'm seeking to forgive them as I've been forgiven first by God. I, I think that that full context. And then in addition to what, as you pointed out in verse 38, the generosity that's there, those things go together to give a, a picture of what Jesus is really saying here. Such, such that we, we know what he's saying, not against the world, but that we don't go too far and, and fall into a spirit of you know, being judgmental and, and condemning sinners. I mean, was not that long ago in Luke, Luke 5, where Jesus said, I came to call sinners to repentance. And if, if our judgment and condemnation of, of sinners prevents us from doing that, then we've, we've gone too far the other way. And, and I I think that's part of the temptation Jesus is guarding against here. Yeah, and I, I like that you're pointing us to the idea of what, what God has done for us. I mean, as I look at verse 38, too, it parallels pretty well for us to the 23rd Psalm, right? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my cup, my head with oil, and my cup overflows. So yeah. generosity here. The, how has the Lord treated us? He The Lord hasn't skimped in how he has dealt with us. He has been so generous to us that our cup overflows. We have more than enough of what we need, and we have all the blessings that the Lord gives of forgiveness and life and salvation. We have them to that fullness. And so because we have them from him, we can turn around and give these things to others, as you connected uh, wonderfully to the the love your enemy section that comes before this. We, We can love them by forgiving them with that forgiveness that comes from Christ. Yeah, the the picture it wasn't that many weeks ago. In if you're in the three year lectionary, where we heard the account from John chapter two, where Jesus provides wine at the wedding there in Cana, and if if ever there was an example of a cup overflowing, <laughs> there there's a great one where Jesus provides up to what 180 gallons of of the finest quality wine that you can imagine. Uh, over and over again, we we see this in the scriptures. The image that I I always get in my mind when it when I read Luke six thirty eight, is the way you would measure like brown sugar. You know, you, you want to pack it in there as tightly as you can and, and get as much brown sugar into that half cup measure or whatever it is that you're measuring as you can. That's the kind of, of generosity that how, how can I 
give as much as I possibly can, even to those who have, who have who intend to hurt me, even to my enemies. That's the kind of, of life that Jesus is calling us to as, as his disciples. That's your, Pastor, that's the comparison of brown sugar there works really well with the idea of flour when you're making a recipe too, because sure. then you're sifting the flour to add in more air to it. It reminds me of uh, when Hershey's Kisses for a while tried to get away with adding the little air bubbles into their Hershey's Kisses and just like you're just you're just giving me less chocolate. I mean, what is this? <laughs> that that's not the generosity right. that Jesus is talking about. Give us give me the full full amount of chocolate. However much is there supposed to be in that Hershey's kiss and then some, right? Give, give yeah, measured down. So, Pastor Andrew, we we talked a little bit about this previously and I, I know again that the division in the text maybe is is not quite where it, it could have been. But just thinking about this this part 38 or 37 and 38 and the way that it does go with these various imperatives when we when we see ourselves falling into the judging and the condemning and the not forgiving that Jesus speaks against here what do we do as Christians when we don't see these fruit fruits evident in our lives rephrase that question for me so I'm, I'm just trying to, uh, what I'm trying to do is tie a little bit of a bow on this section that I would say starts at verse 27, love your enemies, do good, bless those who curse you. Here we're talking judge not, condemn not, and so forth. These are hard things for us to do. I know my, my general outlook is when I see someone doing something that I don't like, I, I start to play the comparison game and judge myself better than them based on how we behave. And, and I don't want to forgive and I, I, I don't want to be as generous. So these are, these are hard things to do in this section that I think ends with these two verses. When we see that in our own lives, that we struggle to do these things, how do we, how do we approach that as Christians? Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, so I would go to what we see from Jesus probably a couple of weeks from now, which would be in chapter 13, repent or perish, right? Repent or perish. That you know, when, when I sin, when I recognize something like that in myself, the Lord calls me to, to confess it, to lay myself down at the foot of the cross and, and trust that the Lord does indeed forgive me. So if I'm in that moment where, you know, I'm looking at my neighbor and they're doing something foolish and, and I want to kind of brag and say, well, <laughs> uh, oh, there's a Pharisee's prayer in scripture about this, right? <laughs> where look at me. Thank, mm, thank yeah. you, Lord, that I'm not like my neighbor. Just pause, repent. Ask the Lord to forgive you of that thought and ask him to help you to love that neighbor and to instead help them rather than, you know, mock them or, or whatever it might be. So repentance is the key there. And I think that's what we're going to see. And that might be a good connection into the, the parable Jesus is about to tell as we think about the, you know, the log in your own eye versus the speck that's in the eye of your, your brother. All right. Well, that, that's great. So let's let's move into this. Again, there's this slight narrative interlude in verse 39. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. 
For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been built, had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. That is the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 6, verses 39 to 49. So Luke tells us right away, Jesus is speaking a parable here, and it starts with the image of a a blind man. So Pastor Andrews, take us into this parable of Jesus. I think it's it's good that you read it all together, because I, I think it's fair to say that verses 39 through 49 actually are together this parable. I mean, it's the same teaching that we're going to see consistently through this, this section. Mm-hmm. So uh, you got the, the picture that I think we can readily understand in our minds as Christians today. We, we know the scriptures make that comparison of, of blindness with unbelief um, and uh, sight with belief. And that's going to help us with the, the parable of the blind man as well. But on the surface, just like if you had a blind person and they were looking to cross the across the road, for example, a blind guide coming alongside of them and taking the other blind person by the hand would not be any more helpful than that first blind person of trying to do it on their own, right? You need someone that can see to guide them safely. And that's our picture here. If a blind man leads a blind man, they're both going to fall into disaster. If an unbelieving man were to lead an unbelieving man, He's not going to suddenly, you know, stumble across salvation. He's going to lead that other blind man, that un- other unbelieving man, into damnation, right? They're going to end in the same trap together. Yeah, the, the mention of a blind man here, and I understand it is a part of Jesus' parable, but it, it really forces me to go back in Luke, to Luke chapter 4, to the first sermon that he preaches in Luke, there at the synagogue in Nazareth. And I mentioned this yesterday, that I think there's some parallels between this sermon in Luke 6 and the verse from Isaiah 61 that Jesus speaks. Yesterday, we talked about how this sermon here in Luke 6 starts with, blessed are you who are poor. In that text from Isaiah 61, Jesus says that he's been sent, anointed by the Spirit, to proclaim good news to the poor. And that continues, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And and here, as as Jesus speaks this parable that closes out his sermon in Luke 6, he starts with this image of a blind man. And I don't think that's a coincidence. It's as if in this parable, he wants his disciples to recall that text from Isaiah 61 and to realize, okay, if I can't follow a blind man, because that's just going to leave me in a pit, who am I going to follow to get this sight? That text from Isaiah 61 that Jesus quotes about himself, Jesus is saying, hey, follow me. I'm the one who won't lead you astray. I will lead you into salvation. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. I know that's John's gospel, but I mean... (laughs) That's okay. Uh, Yeah, I mean, when we look at Isaiah 61, the words from Jesus there, this is also misunderstood pretty easily, even by the people at that time, right? 
um, that he's come to bring liberty to the captives or to the oppressed. And they think he's there to liberate them from Rome. So even the idea of the blind recovering their sight, Jesus came to bring liberty to us from our oppression under sin, death, and the devil. He came to restore sight to those who are blind and cannot see the things of God. And so, yes, there are miracles in the New Testament because Jesus is compassionate and he loves his creation. He loves his people where he heals them of literal physical blindness. But it's a great connection to consider here that it's more than just physical blindness that's in his mind. And and this parable certainly brings that across too. Yeah. And I think, so you mentioned, you know, we read all this together here, 39 through 49, and there are a lot of different images that Jesus uses, but I do think that that you're right to, to say, okay, let's start with this one and see how that works its way through. And Jesus continues to teach the same thing in this section, even with, with different ways of, of looking at it. So we've got the, the blind man can't lead the blind man because they'll both fall into a pit. So instead, follow Jesus. What about a disciple not being above his teacher? What what's how does how does this parable continue to work with the image of a disciple and a teacher in verse forty? Well, a couple of things here. First would be the the observation to what we talked about before. Is this the same as the Sermon on the Mount, or is this Jesus teaching at a different time? If we're gonna try to build an argument from the text, I think this might be it. And that's the idea that verse thirty nine it's not in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. But it is later in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 15 as a judgment against the Pharisees. And then verse 40, the idea that the disciple is not above his teacher, also not in the Sermon on the Mount, but shows up in Matthew 10 in a section about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how if Jesus as the teacher, the master, is going to be hated and suffer and be crucified, why should we as the disciple expect anything different, right? We're being trained to be like our teacher we're not being trained to be better than him. And, and so it's interesting that both Luke and Matthew can use that teaching of Jesus, but we see it in different times, and even here, to have a subtly different meaning. And within Jesus' sermon here, verse 40, perfectly follows the blind parable. If you're unbelieving, if you follow another unbeliever, you're not going to find faith. So the the unbelieving disciple following after an unbelieving teacher, when he's fully trained, he's not going to have faith. He's going to be masters, a master of whatever his unbelieving teacher was a master of. So yeah, I think I think you're right. It follows very very well, right? In verse thirty nine, don't follow the blind man. Follow the one who can see. That's Jesus. Now don't follow the lying teacher, follow the truthful teacher. Again, that's Jesus, to, to use John, the way, the truth, and the life. Again, follow Jesus. Put these words of Jesus into practice, which is where this text is headed, as we will see more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Steve Andrews about Luke chapter 6. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, February 3rd. We are studying Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 49 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we're working through the last part of Jesus' sermon here in Luke 6, starting in verse 39, this parable. He starts with the image of a blind man, need to follow the teacher who can see. Then not an unbelieving teacher in verse 40, the true teacher, so that you are trained in the truth. Now we get back to the image of seeing again. It it really struck me this time that that Jesus talks about something that's stuck in your eye in his next. So we're we're talking again about how well you can see here in verse 41. And and the image is, is quite striking. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I mean, I can imagine a speck in someone's eye. I think I've had a speck in my own eye before, but to have a log in your eye, goodness, that's that's hard to picture. What's Jesus getting at with this image? It is a hilarious image, right? You've got this tree sticking out of your face, and you're just walking around, <laughs> knocking into everything. Um, that's, yeah, that's, that's striking, as you said. Um, <laughs> Jesus here with the verse 41, he's, he's just pointing out, and rightly so, our sinful nature. We... We like to see the problems with other people before we notice the problems of our own. Um, and I don't know that I would read even much into the size of the speck versus the log. I think Jesus is just teaching us humility in this example um, that we need to be concerned about our own standing before the Lord, uh, that there is sin in my life and that I need to be repentant of that sin. Because if I'm not, if I'm just, if I'm, I'm, if I'm living a life of unrepented sin, I think then as I try to help the brother with the speck in his eye, I'm the blind leading the blind at that point. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, the the need that I have to see myself comes through in verse 41 and then into verse 42, because this image does continue into verse 42, where, where Jesus questions, how, how could you say to your brother, let me get that speck when you've got the log? And so he says, you know, first take the log out, then you can see, there's that image of seeing still, to take the speck out that's in your brother's eye. How does how does this come into, I mean, I think this helps us even with what we're talking about, verse 37, the judge not. How does this tie into all of, all of what Jesus has been teaching so far? Well, this is, yeah, you're right to tie this back in with 37. As we were talking about our culture's response to the Christian before, they really don't see the context. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Well, actually, if you keep reading the text, there is judgment here, right? I am to judge. I am to discern what is going on in the life of my neighbor. Um, But I'm supposed to be humble first. I'm supposed to cast off pride first and repent myself and seek the Lord's forgiveness myself so that I can then judge what is going on in my neighbor's life and I can share the good news of Christ and his love and his forgiveness with them too. 
because if we were supposed to judge not at all, right, then we would not, in verses 41 and 42, we would not see the speck that's in our neighbor's eye. We would not seek to help them take it out. But we're told, first take the log out of your own eye, so first repent, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's. You know, I mean, I think this is this part of the text is is very important. And again, the idea of seeing that that Jesus points us first to can I see? And, and again, how how do I know if I see or not? Well, have I listened to what Jesus says? Am I following Jesus? Because He's the one. Again, to go back from to that text He quotes in Luke four, He's the only one who can give the recovering of sight to the blind. And so if I'm not following him, if I'm not listening to his words, then I have no sight of my own. And I, I can't do anything in that state. So I need to see first myself. I need to be listening to Jesus. And I really think, I mean, that that even takes us back into the Beatitudes of, of this, recognizing who I am. I'm the poor one. I'm the hungry one. I'm the weeping one. I, I'm the one who, apart from Christ, has nothing. And, and apart from that realization, I've got nothing to offer my brother. I, I can't help him at all with whatever's in his eye. And so I need to be following Jesus. And in all of this, I really think this is true for all of this sermon, in all of this, I, I will never do any of it unless I'm following Jesus first. And then when I am following Jesus, listening to his word, making me see, then I actually can be of some use to my brother. And, and that that's where I think this this text does come in. You know, make sure you can see first, dear Christian. Are you listening to Jesus' word? Are you repentant? Are you humble? Do you recognize who you are? And in that state, now you're prepared to help your brother. But apart from that, you're likely not going to do much for that speck that's there in his eye. Well said. Very good, Pastor Andrews. So with that, then here, here we, we get a change in image a little bit, I think, and yet probably related. Now we're not talking about what's in my eye or what's in my brother's eye. Now I'm talking about trees and their fruit. So no good tree bears bad fruit, nor a bad tree bearing good fruit. And you don't get figs from thorn bushes, grapes from bramble bush. What, what's going on here with trees and their fruit? It's, it is the same image, right? I mean, where does the parable actually end? It doesn't really seem to end until you get to the end of the chapter. Here it's, again, judgment and discerning. We are to know a tree by its fruit. We are to be able to look at a person and recognize their works and whether that person is a brother of ours in the faith or a sister um, or not, right? If, they're, if they, they say that they're Christian, but all that they do is, is live a life that is contrary to what Christ said, a good tree does not bear bad fruit. All right. And I mean, this this makes sense, particularly the figs and thorn bushes and, and grapes from a bramble bush. How does Jesus take that image then and apply it in verse 45 with the good person bringing out good treasure and the evil person bringing out evil? Well, there's a, there's a lot of family could have a conversation around. I mean, this is, this is daily life stuff here in verse 45 at this point. Um, I like to connect this as we see this, this phrasing to what Luke will say later on uh, from Jesus in chapter 12, or we see it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
it's the invitation, practically daily living. What am I filling myself with? What should I be filling myself with? Like if I'm going to spend all of my time on sports, for example, watching sports, playing sports. I mean, we're in the middle of the, the football playoffs, right? Uh, and to be able to talk about sports with other people, that's what's going to happen. If I spent my whole weekend watching football, come you know Sunday at church or Monday morning or whatever, I'm going to be talking football. I'm going to talk stats, fun plays that I saw, whatever it might be. If I fill myself with entertainment that is filled with all sorts of language that the scriptures teach us not really to make use of, eventually my speech is going to start to match that language. And so what do we fill ourselves with? Um, And we are told, I think Colossians 3 would be a helpful guide for us here. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, "Let let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, Fill yourself. Let Christ's word dwell in you richly, which is what you were sharing earlier in the the idea of sight in this parable as well. I mean, if Christ's word is what fills me, then as I go out to interact with the people around me, it will be Christ's word that comes out from me rather than whatever of Steve um, I would have coming out otherwise. It's striking that you, you bring up sports. And because I'm I just thinking back in watching some of the NFL playoffs, how, how quick I am. I, 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 watch a, I watch a play. It's an amazing play. Something incredible happened. And I, I text someone about it. You know, or I, I tell one of my, my sons in the other room, hey, come watch the replay. You, know, you, need, to, you need to see what happened. And how, how quickly... When I'm I'm filled with that, it's it comes out of my mouth. It seems very quickly to tell someone or to talk to someone about it. A, a very you know, I mean, a real application of what Jesus is saying here that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how and this is maybe just a question for my own self examination, and, and for anyone, you know, how how often does the word of God come out of my mouth? Is is that what's filling me? Is that what is coming out of my mouth? And if not, why not? And not not in the sense that, you know, if you don't speak God's word a certain number of times, or if you if every text you send isn't a Bible passage that you're quoting, that somehow you're, you're you've got it all wrong. But a, but just an honest way of of looking at my life, if I'm not speaking God's word, then maybe I need to take a look at what's filling me. If if all of my speech is about one thing. And again, I'm not, not saying that it's wrong to watch the NFL playoffs or something like that or to talk to our friends about it. But if that's all that I ever talk about or all I ever watch, I, I think we need we need to take these verses to heart in that sort of self-examination way. And and hopefully then to to get our eyes open again and our ears open again to hear, to see those things that God wants so that they do start, we do start to speak those things, whether to our, our children at home or to our our friends at work or wherever that the Lord may give us opportunity to, to speak the word that he's using to fill us. Right. I mean, as you get near the end of the gospel, the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, as he knows he's going to be separated from his disciples, he warns them that they are going to be dragged before governors and, and such, and that in that moment they're not to worry about what they are to speak. 
because the Holy Spirit will give them the words to speak. And while that's not a direct one-to-one promise per se to you and to me, as you know, if persecution were to strike and they put me in prison, um, there is a similarity, right? If if I've been filling myself with Christ's word, then when that moment comes, I really I don't need to worry what I will say because the word of Christ will be in me. It will dwell in me. And so as they ask me a question, as Jesus responds to the devil's temptations with, with Scripture, I would be able to respond to the devil's temptations with Scripture. So, yeah, the, the filling of ourselves with the Lord's word daily, I think, is, is important. What, what are some practical suggestions, Pastor Andrews, that, that we can do this as Christians, as in our families, in our congregations, wherever we may be? What, how, how do we go about filling ourselves with God's Word in this way? Have your Bible available, right? I mean, I know we have apps and phone stuff, but have a physical copy of God's Word somewhere where you're going to see it in your house. And when you see it, open it. If there's something that you do every day, you know, like maybe you are one of the few rare birds these days that still reads the newspaper every morning. Well, when you sit down to read your newspaper, put a Bible in the spot you always read your newspaper. And instead of opening the newspaper first, open the Bible and just read God's Word for five minutes and then jump over to the newspaper and, and spend some time there. Um, or if, yeah, if it's on your phone, put the Bible app on the the first screen so that like when you're scrolling your phone turns on, you see it right there as a reminder. I like to encourage families in my congregation to use their to put their devotional materials or things like that that they'll use right on the center of their table in the kitchen as a, a daily visual reminder. Uh, Advent, I think, is helpful in that, that a lot of families will have their own Advent wreath and they'll make it the centerpiece on their table. But outside of Advent, you can do other things like that too. So that as you go through your day as a family, you're seeing something that points you to Christ, and you have that reminder to read his word and to pray. Um, Those are beneficial. One of our congregational practices we have is at the time of a baptism of a child, we will give them, we call it a faith chest. It's a, a wooden treasure chest. It's a box, right, that teaches them this idea from Jesus. So again, Matthew 6 or Luke 12, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also Rather than putting their treasure of the world, rather than learning to treasure the things like their toys and stuff like that that they would other put, otherwise put in a box, put your, put your things in there that remind you of Christ. So the, the newly baptized child, the, the baptismal certificate, the gown, the little cloth that was used to dry off their forehead, um, the baptismal candle, store those things in that faith chest. And as you're growing up, put Bibles in there, um, catechism, other things as well, so that the child is learning as they grow what what truly is important is what points me to Christ in my life. Yeah, and I, I think it's all fantastic reminders. What a, what a beautiful image in your congregation and the idea of a faith chest. And and all of this, you know, I think it's, it's important to see Jesus isn't 
beating us over the head saying, hey, you better do this or else. But he is he's inviting us to to be this good tree. I mean, and I think that that's another important point to make is that it starts with, again, the identity that that are you a good tree or not? Well, how do you become a good tree? Well, to use the image from John, by being connected to the vine, who is the good tree, Jesus Christ. And and that's the way that the fruit comes. So stay connected to him and and, and receive all the blessings. What what joy it is to be ours in Christ, to receive his good treasure first, and then to store that up so that that good treasure just comes out in, in all of our lives and what we speak and what we do. That's that's the joyful way of life that I think Jesus is is calling his disciples into in this section. Now, as the text continues into verse 46, again, an echo of something we read on the Sermon on the Mount, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? How does it fit into this context? It seems like a pretty obvious, I mean, a good question to ask. How does it fit into what Jesus is saying here in Luke 6? Uh, it's, it's again, the idea of the, the blind, the person not seeing, not seeing God's word, not having faith, it's the the te- the disciple thinking he can somehow be different than his teacher. It's the the tree producing a different fruit. If if Jesus is your Lord, that means you are his disciple. It means you are his slave. And as a slave or a disciple of another, that means you are to do what that one gives you to do. Um, it's I, it still fits the parable, right? It, it's about who is our master. Who is it that we follow and where is it that they are leading us? And if Jesus is our master, he is leading us to paradise. And he's equipping us for that in this world, uh, first by loving us and forgiving us, but then also by filling us with his word that we know the way to go because he is the way. Hmm. So then the the parable closes with, I, I know you're going to tell me, it's the same thing happening the the image now is of construction. So, and I think these are, are familiar words. There's a children's song written about this, if I'm not mistaken, about the man who built his house on the rock and the man who builds his house on without a foundation. It's not on the sand. That's Matthew. So I, I've got to catch myself here. So, <laughs> Pastor Andrews, what's what's the the image of construction? Just give us the image of construction, and then how does Jesus take that and apply it? I do feel like I'm picturing a children's song motion, like a hand motion of them hammering something or something or another. But yeah, I can't remember <laughs> I it. I don't remember that song myself all that well. So, yeah, it, it is a construction picture, right? And we have we have a home. And when you build your home on a strong foundation, your home is much more likely to last and to survive. And there are all sorts of disasters or even just the change of, an, of a small local environment that can, can alter a home. So you think of a home that's built on a slope, for example, and over 10 years time, the slope, you know, it changes. And so the house, you know, the house shifts or the house even, you know, falls but I've always questioned this myself in, in regards to, you know, growing up in Missouri and living in Missouri, and that's near Tornado Alley. And so many of the homes in Tornado Alley are built without a basement. They're built without that foundation. They're just built right there on the ground. And then the tornado comes and they don't have that strength beneath them to support the, the rest of the structure. Um, and Jesus uses the storm image here, but specifically the flooding image. And so if if your house is built strong, when that, that water comes rushing against it, 
the house remains. But if your house doesn't have that base, it doesn't have that strength beneath it, the water comes and it just, it sweeps your house away. And this is, as again, you mentioned it. I was going to connect it back to everything else. Um, this is the judgment of the Lord, right? Faith versus unbelief, seeing versus not seeing. If we're blind, if we don't have that faith, if our foundation is not Jesus Christ, then when the day of the Lord comes, when Christ returns and the judgment comes, we will be swept away um, into the into the fires of hell. But if we have that foundation that is Jesus Christ and is his word, if he is our master, if he is our guide, then whenever, uh, well, when that judgment comes, we will, our house will stand, we will be welcomed into paradise. But it's true in this life as well. When disaster strikes in this evil world, our faith will be strong enough to endure it because our faith is built not on ourselves and our own pride and look at how great I can be, our faith is built on the the rock, the the true, the true one who takes away the sins of the world, and and he is the one who, as Hebrews one phrases it, upholds the entire universe by the power of his word. Uh, dig into that part a little bit more about how I mean, you, as you said, you know, in in terms of the end judgment, that you know, if you've built on Christ, you will be saved. If you've not, you will not be saved. But but dig in a little bit more to what you said about how this works in in our own lives. I mean, say because this has happened here in in Bastrop County recently, there was a, a fire that that threatened homes. It didn't, thankfully, thanks be to God, did not consume any homes this time. But we've had fires here in Bastrop County that have consumed homes. I mean, we can think of floods that have have actually you know taken away homes. And you mentioned tornadoes. When when those disasters do come to our physical houses now, how is it that having a foundation built on Christ? sustains us in those times. I think this connects very well to the parable that you'll see pretty soon as you keep going here in Luke, and that's Luke chapter 8. It's the parable of the sower that Jesus gives. You've got the the, the sower God who, who scatters the good news, of the seed, anywhere and everywhere, and some of it falls on the, on the path, some of it fa- falls onto the rocky soil, some among the weeds, and some on, into good soil, which grows and produces a, you know, a hundredfold. But the rocky soil is, is what the connection would be here, where um, it seems like faith, faith is there, right? They've heard the word, they rejoice at hearing the good news about Jesus, and then, then some kind of persecution comes. Some kind of a testing of their faith comes, and there's no root underneath that faith, and so it it dies. And that that's what we see, I think, a lot, unfortunately, in the church today, both the rocky soil and the weeds, because the weeds are those choked out, faith is choked out by the cares of this world. But our faith does get hit, right? We are engaged in spiritual warfare. The devil is against us, and he is seeking to lead us away from Christ. And so in these moments of daily life, whether it's the death of a a loved one, or it's um, even something simple for a child, like what happened to them at school today, whether it's uh, a relationship with a friend that that went south, if it's a bully or a failed grade or just those simple things, those can test our faith too. And if we don't have Christ's word as that foundation, our faith can be shaken pretty quickly. The devil's had 6,000 years of practice at shaking the faith of the Christian, and he's, he's, pretty, he's pretty good at it. 
Sure. I'm, I'm thinking now of a, another, I don't, this isn't really a children's song, although children should sing it, I suppose. My hope is built on nothing less, and, and how that hymn makes use of this image. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I mean, what a what a wonderful promise that when those you know persecutions or troubles of this life, the cares of this life, when they come at us, in Christ we have a, a certain foundation that even even though we may be knocked over physically, yet we stand in Christ because we know that you know, I mean, to, gosh, to take us back to the the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now when people hate you. That's that's when we are blessed. And and the only way we can have that promise is to stand on Christ. And that does sustain us in those moments. And I, I mean, I man, that really, I think, ties the, the sermon together very nicely. Pastor Andrew, we've got about two minutes for your concluding thoughts, summaries, anything from this text. How do, how do we see our Savior Jesus from these words in Luke 6? Well, this is Jesus giving himself to us as the foundation to build our earthly life upon, right? That if we, if we have faith, if we are in prayer, if we're in his word, if that is our daily life with him, then, well... He's, he's for us. He's with us. He will provide for us. He is our rock. He is our strength. Uh, this is the beauty then of Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Nothing in this world. Um, and I think that then this also is no coincidence that what's going to follow this account is going to be the idea of the healing of the centurion's servant in chapter 7, that this centurion has that, that faith that goes beyond what Jesus has seen in all the land of Israel, right? He's, he's not a, a Jew, but he has heard of Jesus. He has faith in Jesus, and he's, he's blessed by Jesus in return. And I think you'll see that connection, and hopefully you can build on that, I guess, tomorrow uh, in the text. But um, yeah, this is the Lord for us, and we are to, to connect it back to the rest of the sermon we love because he first loved us, right? God has given us an overflowing abundance of his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and life in Jesus. And so we get to love our enemies, we repent of our sins, and we continue to live the life that the Lord has given. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri helping us today with Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 49. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, brother. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 6 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.